well, you know, Paul may have said slaves obey your masters, but I can't follow that. And I can't agree with that because Jesus told me I have to see everything through through love. And Paul admits that he sees through a mirror dimly, you know, as well. Then maybe this is just Paul being like the people of God have always been and getting it wrong sometimes. And maybe it's okay to admit that. And we don't have to go through all sorts of weird mental gymnastics to reconcile that with the time period or cultural context. Maybe we can just say slavery is wrong because slavery is wrong. And Paul was a human being. And sometimes people get it wrong. And sometimes people get it wrong in the name of God because that still happens today. All right. Hey, everybody. This is uh, Tom. Dr. Tom to some, Pastor Tom to some, Tom to many, uh, and uh, welcome to the Liminal Living Podcast. Uh, this is a podcast for those in dark nights and deconstruction uh, who are kind of in that your faith is dismantled and looking for uh, just a new way of being in this world. And today uh, on this podcast, I talked with author Zach Hunt, who wrote an amazing book called God Breathed. That was one word. Uh, and it is about deconstructing the Bible and a fundamentalist understanding of it. And we go to some really interesting, fun, deep, raw, honest, great places today. Uh, so I think you are going to enjoy this conversation with Zach and uh, so without further ado, here we go. Let's dive in to deconstructing the Bible. All right. Well, Zach, uh, Zach Hunt, welcome to the Liminal Living uh, podcast. It's just a pleasure to have you. You're my very first person that I don't know. This is the first time I've ever met you in my entire life it was like five minutes ago. And uh, I'm just really excited to have you here on the podcast. I'm glad to be here and honored to be your first stranger uh, on the podcast. Thank hopefully. you. Yeah, hopefully at the end, we're not strangers. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So um, you you wrote this book called God Breed that I do want to uh, get into, which is just such a helpful book for people who want to, you know, understand the Bible f from the non-fundamentalist aspect. And I, I want to get into that. Um, but first, I'd like to kind of get to know you and I'd like to know like what are your your spiritual roots like where did you come from uh sure yeah um so I uh like say I was born raised in the buckle of the Bible belt uh here in Nashville Tennessee where we produce I think uh most of the world's Bibles oh wow or at least really um, I didn't know that yeah I think they get printed here um, or at least like more than anywhere else. We're home to the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, the United Methodist Church. Uh, it's um, several religious institutions. Um, uh, I went to one of them for college. But yeah, so I, I grew up um, in the Church of the Nazarene, which is an offshoot of the um, Methodism, um, not the United Methodist Church, because um, we started before there was a UMC. So anyway, it's complicated. We're Wesleyan. Um, that That's what I grew up in. Um, it used to be a, a little bit bigger tent than I think it's be, um, becoming um, that would, in, you know, include folks, you know, kind of on both ends of the spectrum because the folks, the focus was, um, you know, not on a lot of the cultural battles, you know, that they get fought today. But um, but still, I grew up conservative evangelical. Um, you know, it, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a, you know, a loving home, you know, fairly open minded, you know, for our uh, end of the ideological spectrum so like i wasn't 
you know, I didn't have some of this stuff like shoved down the throat that, you know, some of my friends did, but you know, I grew up believing in the rapture, worrying about the rapture, fearing that, you oh, know, yeah. I've been left behind. Oh yeah. Um, that was subject of my first book, uh, unraptured shameless, uh, self-marketing plug right there. Oh, yeah. Um, but you know, I, I grew up with those fears, grew up only listening to Christian music, um, grew up wanting to be a youth pastor, went to college to do that, had a kind of crisis of faith, um, about the rapture and, and much other things and, um, went this way and, and that for a while and, um, end up going back and, uh, doing some more graduate work, found a job as a youth pastor, um, was a youth pastor for several years, um, then decided to go back to school again, um, while my wife was in residency and, uh, she was finishing her schooling, thought I was going to be a, a professor or I wanted to do PhD work. But after that second master's, I realized that, um, I would much rather do popular writing than academic writing, not popular in the sense that like people like it, but like yeah. not in the, you know, academic sense. So, so yeah, so here I am, um, you know, kind of working out my faith, uh, for the whole world to see, um, on the internet and, and in books. Sorry, my dogs are getting antsy oh. um, in the background. I will. Um, I love dogs. Oh, I, I do too. Um, they, but they're, they have quite the yelp in my house. Oh, nice. What kind of dogs do you have? Uh, well, so the two, one's a Bernadoodle. She is short oh, and, um, a mini one. So she's like, okay. You know, a foot and a half off the ground. Like a living um, teddy bear? Yes. <laughs> but like three feet wide. Um, <laughs> and, and then a sheepadoodle who's, uh, a little taller and fluffier and, um, has more energy than I thought any creature um, was possible. Oh, yeah. yeah. Those herder dogs. Yeah, no, they're, they're both sweet, um, but also can be loud. That's okay. where choose to be right now. That's all right. I love dogs, so we can have dogs in the podcast. I got a Labradoodle, first generation, named Eleanor, and she's the sweetest. And then we just got uh, Gilbert from the shelter, and we think Irish Wolfhound Doodle. We're not sure. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so I'll show you, I'll send you pictures later. Very cool. Yeah, I'd like to see that. What's what's really getting a lot of attention are the billboards that you uh, you purchased around Nashville. Uh, I've seen there's three of them, right? Right. So wh- right, they, what do those say? So they they ran through this past Sunday, um, and there was three of them. Uh, the idea was to take some of the fundamentalism you know that i'm critiquing in the book um some of those their own tactics and and reappropriate them you know and flip them upside down it's growing up in the south you know you drive up and down the interstate uh and you see jesus billboards you know of all kinds um some more uh in your face you know than others and so um the idea was to take that sort of tactic and make it more like hopeful or at least more provocative and so we end up with with three um, messages that together I think really capture the book and and sort of an intentional order. It's you know the it's okay to admit when the Bible is wrong, um, and then I think that's how it was phrased. Sorry, I went through a whole bunch of revisions, yeah. um, and <laughs> I I can't keep them all track or, or all 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 together. Um, it's okay to admit when the Bible is wrong. Um, God didn't write the Bible; people did, um, and then you are not going to hell. And so each one of those had a verse that uh, is attached to it that that kind of explains it. But really, there's a there was a web address underneath that further explained it. Because with with the first one with um, 
uh, it's okay to admit when the Bible's wrong. And, you know, the verse is Paul talking about how we see through a mirror dimly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one with the, what God didn't write the Bible people did is just Romans 1, 1, where Paul says, this is Paul writing this letter. Um, and then that you are not going to hell, um, which has probably been the most, um, you know, uh, I don't know, has gotten the most attention. Um, but from people who are angry at the idea that people aren't going to hell, and then people, uh, especially uh, agnostics and atheists who see it as good news, you know, um, and that's uh, John three seventeen. You know, God didn't come in the world to condemn the world. So, like, what? When was your? I guess I'll call it the oh shit moment, where like you're growing up in this conservative evangelical culture, and right. usually like there's like this moment where you're like, wait, this doesn't make any sense any longer. Uh, things right. are falling apart. What was that moment like for you? Was it a thought? Was it a uh, experience? Like, what was that? Oh yeah, no, it, it was definitely a very specific moment, um, and it's it's in that first book, Unraptured. I I um I showed up at college thinking that I showed up wanting to be a youth pastor. And so to be a youth pastor, you take religion classes. And, you know, I, in my head, it was going to be like AP Sunday school, you know, and I was awesome and got, you know, all the prizes and candy in Sunday school. So, you know, this is going to be a cakewalk. Um, I learned very quickly that, you know, I was a bit in over my head. Um, You know, it was not AP Sunday school. And, um, some of my thoughts that I assumed everybody agreed with, you know, not everybody agreed with, you know, including professors. And so there's one day um, at the end of the first semester where I was going, I had a meeting set up with one of the New Testament professors who was my advisor. And we were supposed to, you know, chart out the next semester, pick pick my courses, whatever. Before we did that, I sat down and I, uh, I gave him like a 20 minute uninterrupted spiel about you know, my theories on the rapture, uh, you know, on the millennium, like when Jesus is going to return, uh, why it was going to be a pre or post, you know, I, you know, who my candidates were for the antichrist. And, you know, I got all of this from a TV preacher named Jack Van Impey. And, and oh, so I was like, yeah. you know, Jack, yeah. you remember Jack? I do. I grew uh, up watching him with my, my, my dad. But yeah. So I, I was really, really into him in high school. And, and, you know, I, one of the, I told him all about that and all the, you know, evidence that Jack had given. And he said, you know, I, I really respect, you know, folks like him. Um, you know, they clearly love the Bible and the faith. He said, but you know, the problem is, um, that they're trying to pinpoint places on a map that simply doesn't exist. He said, you know, they're right that we are living in the end times, but we have been ever since Jesus walked out of the tomb. Um, and, uh, that, that was a very definite, um, fork in the road moment, you know, for me, uh, yeah, cause I left angry, you know, cause I, I was embarrassed and, and I thought, you know, this is going to be this big shiny moment where I can show off and it was, you know, me falling on my face. And so that really was, was the first thread, you know, proverbial thread pulled on my faith because it forced me to confront the possibility, not just that I had been wrong or could be wrong, but that I had been and could be wrong about things that, I consider it essential to my faith that we're beyond questioning. And so, um, you know, that just started a whole path of, of well, what else, you know, what else could I be you know, wrong about? And that's something that took course over years, you know, that wasn't, you know, something that happened you know, in a few weeks or a few months. It's still happening today, you know. I guess, who are the voices that guided you 
along the path that you see is like, these were the essential people that helped me kind of figure out this path from that moment there where like Jack Van Impey, oh, maybe he's not, you know, like the Bible, um, uh, all the way till now, like who are the voices that guided you along the way that helped you? Mm. You know, I, I, for me, most of them are personal. I mean, as cliche as it sounds, my wife, you know, has had a, you know, outside influence on me, not just because she's my wife, but she was the first, you know, real, uh, liberal and Yankee that, that I got to meet. Cause I, you know, grew up conservative in the South and she grew up liberal in Massachusetts. And so, you know, seeing her, uh, and her family, you know, be Christian in a way that I, I thought you couldn't be Christian, you know, really forced me to open my mind, you know, to, um, new possibilities because her father, uh, her parents are divorced. Her father is actually a monk. Um, you know, he, yeah, he took some vows several years ago and he lives uh, in a big Benedictine mon monastery. And so I'm like, you know, this guy's more Christian than I am, you know, and he's a liberal. Like, how does, how does that work? How does this work? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, from a personal standpoint, them, um, you know, my friend, you know, Rachel Evans, um, you know, her courage in writing, um, but also like, she was just a, such a great like supporter and encourager, like on a personal level, um, you know, and so like that, that's helped shape me to be, to try to be more as gracious, you know, to others as, as she was to, to people like me. Um, and then, you know, obviously intellectually too, you know, her writing and things like that yeah. and just a bunch of like random, um, theologians and dead people um from 2000 years ago whose whose writings you know I, you know that's the thing is i mean it's it's for me there's there's that very definite starting point that i can point to where it kind of unraveled but like the people it had varied from you know the famous to the anonymous you know from professional theologians to classmates you know whose whose names you know um no one will ever know that that have influenced me um yeah, uh, I'm trying to think of if I could drop names. I I should be able to, to rattle off book titles, but uh, but I, I I'm not as good at promoting other people as I am myself. <laughs> That's all right. You're you're to do that actually. But um, <laughs> man, well, I appreciate your voice, and you know, you mentioned uh, Rachel Evans, and she she was such a courageous voice that we lost too early. And yeah, I I'm gonna be sad if we go down that road, but. I'm glad yeah. that she has helped shape. She helped shape uh, my thinking as well. So we have we have a mutual friend in that one, but I never met her. Um, she's she's a great person. It, it's funny, like like the the way that we were taught to use the Bible as conservative evangelicals was to like create like this personal self-sustaining empire. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, I need that voice and that voice and this person and all these people come to help us along the way in like our journey of becoming. And that has really, it really shines through in your book. So why, why did you say, you know, I have to write this book? What, what was it that sparked that moment? Um, 
That's a good question. I, two reasons. Um, one, like I said before, and, and I just keep repeating myself on, you know, with this, this answer is, you know, this is, is me, um, you know, working out my faith and in real time, you know, working out my faith, uh, it, not as I go. I mean, this is the culmination, you know, of years of, uh, ministry and years of writing and years of, uh, spending time in the classroom and, um, writing more papers than I can remember. Um, you know, and so it's, for me, it, it's part, you know, personal confession of, and that's what my first book was as well of like admitting that I was wrong about how, you know, I approached the Bible and, and the assumptions that I, that I had about the Bible. And so as part of that, I, you know, I hope I, I wanted to be permission for folks that need permission like myself, you know, that grew up being told, you know, the Bible was off limits for, you know, asking questions you know, like that. It was just an answer book. You know, you, you just do what it says and you go with it because it's plain and it's clear. And so, you know, for folks that, um, you know, are going through deconstruction or asking questions for the first time, yeah, I, I want them to come away from this book feeling free to, to doubt, to, to ask questions, to push back, to, to even disagree. Um, you know, cause that was something that maybe I got a taste of growing up, you know, I, I wasn't, certainly wasn't condemned, um, outright, you know, all the time, definitely not my family, but you know, it was always unspoken, you know, conservative evangelicalism. We're here, um, because we have the right ideas and that's those right ideas get us to heaven. So we can't question, you know, those ideas. And so, you know, I want people to be able to be free and I want them to be able to follow that freedom um, to follow the leading of the spirit. I mean, the spirit plays a huge role in the book, um, to feel free if, if Christianity is something that, that they, you know, still want to hold on to and that, that there is a story in that book that that's worth believing in, you know, a story, um, that's worth, uh, holding on to, you know? And so if folks can still find a faith worth believing, that's great. Um, but ultimately, you know, I, I just hope folks can come away from, a come away from it with a healthier understanding of the Bible that is more intellectually honest, um, spiritually healthy, and ultimately life-giving, you know, for the people that read it and those that we, you know, we share it with. Yeah. Well, as someone who read much of it, um, I say mission accomplished. (laughs) It is, it is a really, uh, I am a pastor. I preach every Sunday. We follow the lectionary calendar. And like this, like you, you really described like how I've learned to approach the Bible. You, you put words on it that, um, I, there's, there's just people say, you know, like you, you preach differently. Like I've never heard that that way before. And to me, it's like, what's well, just so clear. It's just right here. This is what it's saying. Um, and it's like this book really like mapped out what, what made that difference in my own understanding and put words on it and gosh i would say if anyone just is deconstructing having a problem with the bible like this is a really safe book to read because it's not going you're not going to say you know it's okay to question the bible as long as you wrap around and come back to where you were like you really give people freedom and permission with this book and i just think that's so important and beautiful so thank you for writing it thank you that that really means a lot i mean that was absolutely my goal so to hear that is it feels great. Thank you.
Well, jumping into the content of the book itself, um, I got some quotes here that were just like really good. And I want to talk about some of the content. Um, but in chapter one, you're talking about how we like mix up um, the Bible with God. And we're, we're supposed to be worshiping God, but then because we mix up the Bible and God and make those two things like interchangeable, uh, then we end up worshiping the Bible. And you, you really like build out something a thought that I think is really important. You you said when we make God and the Bible interchangeable, um, what we're also doing, albeit unintentionally, is making ourselves or rather our interpretation of the Bible interchangeable with God. That, you, I mean, nail, head, boom, yes. Uh, the question is, what's the key difference between loving the scriptures and idolizing them and worshiping them. What, how do you, like, what's the difference there? I think, you know, what you were just talking about is the beginning of answering that question. Um, you know, I, I saw a tweet the other day that somebody had posted, you know, and, and it started off great and was talking about, you know, how the Jesus is, is our lens for reading scripture. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, it concluded with something that, you know, that way, like our personal perspectives or something else never gets in the way. Um, and I just think that's fundamentally the wrong way to approach the Bible, um, because there's, there's no escaping our personal interpretation and personal perspective and context. And the Bible doesn't ask us to do that. Um, the danger is comes in thinking that we ever could do that because when we do that, um, and we pretend that we have excised ourselves from the act of interpretation or the interpretation isn't needed at all, then what we had done is sanctified our decision-making ability and turned ourselves into, you know, the arbiters of truth, um, you know, and so we, we put ourselves in the place of God. And so, you know, we, um, kind of become like Thomas Jefferson, you know, who famously chopped up the Bible and took out the miracles and things like that. And we do that as well. Um, not taking out the miracles, but chopping it up into creating and affirming, you know, our preconceived ideas and things like that. Again, like the issue isn't that we we bring our particular perspectives and context. That that can be excellent and important, and it's essential, you know. Which is why you know we need a, a diversity of people reading and writing about the Bible, not just old white men or young white men. Um, you know, we need all sorts of people across every spectrum, um, but. You know, if we can't begin in a place, you know, of honesty, a place of of humility that recognizes, you know, our inevitable role in in the reading and interpretation of Scripture, that's when we set ourselves up to turn the Bible into a weapon because it ultimately ends up being about power control. Because in that moment of delusion that we're not part of this process, you know, we seek to control the process. You know, um, I, I'm not doing this. This is God. You know, well, I'm really just trying to secure my my salvation because my salvation is based on right ideas. And if I tell myself, well, this isn't my idea, it's God idea, God's idea, then I feel all the more secure. And so, you know, the very foundation of this book, I think, is, is just taking a moment for all of us, whatever end, you know, end of the ideological spectrum you're on, to just be honest about the role that we all play and how that's inevitable and not a bad thing, but could be a very good thing. But we have to acknowledge that. Yeah. And uh, you're pointing out something really important. I grew up um, in my teenage years, very formative years, my youth group years, was at a really conservative um, evangelical church that 
they they even believe that like emotions were evil emotions were from like the devil because logic and uh, you can't mess with logic like you can't mess with math right like uh you had to um like subjective emotions were subjective and if you had a subjective experience of god then that is like liable for uh, Satan to come in and mess with your mind, you know, like you, yeah. you weren't even allowed to like be emotional in church, right? Like be emotional about God, even given a testimony. Like it was just off, off the, off the table. You're not allowed to do that. Right. Like, yeah. and you're saying, no, this is actually important because we're human and the Bible is written by humans and there's something still divine that's happening in the humanity of it. And you think we'd be comfortable with that because like the central dogma of the Christian faith is that God has become human and there is no separation between the divine and the human in Christ. And why can't the Bible also uh, be divine and human? And I, that's a little bit more dangerous because we don't know how to control that one. You know, like I can control if I just make it into a logical book of facts, I can control that. But as soon as you allow subjectivity and another perspective, I can't control that. And now it's dangerous. So we label it Satan and it's bad. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, you look how, you know, the book of, I mean, look how the Bible opens with, with Adam and Eve snatching at control, um, you know, trying to snatch at the divine of, of, of the tree of knowledge to, to, to control, you know, their own lives more. And then you look in the writings of, Paul in the earliest hymns of the church, you know, he's reciting that same thing over again, you know, almost as a reminder that, you know, to follow Jesus in particular, but to be a follower of God is to give up control while still acknowledging, you know, that we are in control of our lives. We make decisions and have responsibilities, but yeah, you know, it's when we reduce the Christian life and salvation into a zero-sum game of me getting into heaven, then that control is everything because our souls depend on it. Yeah. You know, but when that happens, then, you know, you, there's no room for the spirit to move. You know, there's there's no room for the spirit to breathe. And if the spirit is the source of life, then we end up, you know, a valley of dry bones. Mm. Now, you use the phrase, the Bible is the story of the people of God told by the people of God. Um, like, you use that definition of the Bible quite a bit in the book. Why do you think that is so important that you repeat it, like, over and over again? Um, two reasons. You know, well, three reasons. Um, you know, one, it's really important to me, you know, and, and you see this in the book, to establish, you know, what the Bible is and what the Bible is not, you know, and the Bible is not a book, you know, it's, it's a, uh, library, it's an anthology, it's, it's a collection of things. And I think the story captures that, um, better, you know, um, than really even those other words, because there, there's an interconnectedness, you know, they're not just haphazardly, you know, mm -hmm. uh, brought together you know there's there's intentionality um and then I, I like the image of a story because i think that the story is something that 
or a story is something that transcends boundaries better um, than, you know, a list of facts or a history, you know, like this isn't the, the history of the people of God because there's, you know, not just because there's historical inaccuracies, but because there's lots of history that's not in there. You know, this is the story, you know, this, these are important moments. Um, this is how we understand God's activity in our lives. And as a story, it's something that, that stretches beyond the boundaries of where it was written, but it also invites us to participate in it, I think. You know, because I think it's an open-ended story. You know, it's a story. You, it ends in Revelation, but Revelation ends way off in the future, right? In mm-hmm. in in a weird sort of time sense, right? So the Bible itself closes Revelation, but all those events happen way off. So if that's true, if all these things at the end of the story happen way off in the future of our story, then we're part of this story. You know, this thing is still us. And so then it becomes an invitation to, I think, to tell that story in new and fresh ways, um, just as the people of God have, have been doing for, you know, thousands of years. That's a really cool thought to to see the Bible, uh, like the dawning of humans with Adam and Eve, and then like the ending of time. And like those two were like in the middle and we're still within the story of the Bible. It's so easy to think the Bible was written for this past period of past peoples and we're like our lives are included in those two bookends i never thought of it that way that's really cool i'm gonna be honest with you i hadn't thought of it till just now and i'm regretting not putting it in the book damn (laughs) i'm like why didn't i put that so i'll I'll be tweeting that almost all right all right that's (laughs) awesome now you said um in chapter two when finding a meaning worthy of God is our guide for reading, interpreting, and implementing scripture. So many of the ways we formerly use the Bible become non-starters, beating others over the head with clobber passage and damning them to hell because they don't agree with our interpretation, no matter how plain we might think it is, is not a meaning worthy of a loving God. It is not inspiring to anyone, and it is certainly not life-giving. It's the sort of calcification that destroys our spirit-breathed imagination and brings death to all who accidentally find themselves in our zealous wake. That's a longer quote that I had to just say all of it because that that's one, I loved your use of non-starter because that reminds me of Hamilton. <laughs> and I love, <laughs> I love the musical Hamilton. And two, because it really just takes off the table, like the anxiety around disagreeing with the Bible. Like you just take it off and say, that's totally not even worthy. And now this way that you were using the Bible, if you have a different purpose for it, those are just non-starters altogether. What inspired you to write that? What are you hoping that um, accomplishes in people's lives and hearts? You know, yes, before, if there's about specific people, um, this is one of those specific people that's, you know, influenced me because this is Origen. Um, Origen is one of the earliest church fathers. He's writing um, in the, well, fourth century, I think. I'm going to embarrass myself. That's uh, right. I don't know either. <laughs> I just wrote about him for like two or three chapters, and I, I should remember this. But Origen is, is a North African bishop uh, from Alexandria. He ends up moving um, into, uh, I guess, Palestine later on. But anyway, he's one of the most influential um, of the church fathers, the most influential, you know, until Augustine, you know, who comes about a, a generation or two later. And um, it's this is the idea that I found in Origen in his book um, on first principles in um, 
was really a freeing moment for me because he he just lays it out and says, I mean, we should be searching if we believe that this is a you know a book of God, you know, that it's divine, that this is a story about God, then we should try to find a meaning that's worthy of God um, or worthy of the God that we find in that scriptures. And that God is a God of love, which means that if we're going to read this thing and use this thing, then we have to use it in a way that reflects a God who is love. And anything that doesn't do that is a, like I said, like a non, it's just a non-starter. And then Augustine picks this theme up as well when he says, you know, any interpretation that you have, no matter how great you think your ex-Jesus is or how many other proof texts or whatever, um, if it doesn't lead you to love God and neighbor, then you're wrong. And then, you know, both of them, all they're doing is just, you know, echoing Jesus who says all the law and the prophets hang on this command to love. And so for me, all of reading that for the first time in grad school, reading, you know, origin, it was the first time, you know, that someone had had something that was so simple and so liberating, you know, that, that allowed me to continue to hold on to this story that I still valued, you know, and found meaning in, um, but do in a way that was honest and, and healthy. You know, that um, that just took things off the table immediately and said, well, you know, Paul may have said slaves obey your masters, but I can't follow that. And I can't agree with that because Jesus told me I have to see everything through through love. Um, and Paul admits that he sees through a mirror dimly, you know, as well. Then maybe this is just Paul being like the people of God have always been and getting it wrong sometimes. And maybe it's OK to admit that. And we don't have to go through all sorts of weird mental gymnastics to reconcile that with the time period or cultural context, maybe we can just say slavery is wrong because slavery is wrong. And Paul was a human being. And sometimes people get it wrong. And sometimes people get it wrong in the name of God, because that still happens today wow. all the time. Wow. Yeah. And that personally, I've been uncomfortable taking on Paul because of my upbringing um, in that very conservative church. It was like we interpreted Jesus through Paul. And, right. and you know, we, we would take on all of Paul's epistles. And they were like, it was like Paulianity, not Christianity. <laughs> you know, and like we, yeah. and then if we did do Jesus, it was, you know, like, well, here's what he said about lust and sex and money and, and right. hell, you know, and there nothing else was like and everything was through the lens of paul and it was all centralized on paul and his understanding and like you're just saying we don't have to do that paul was just wrong period about slavery let's move on with our lives right and you know and that was another one of those influences um you know around the same time with one of the professors and this is you know a story that i recount in the book but you know the long story short was just he dropped this for me was, was a bombshell at the time with what if sometimes the Bible is just wrong, you know, not, not just in like scientific facts or historical accounts, but some of the things that it says are just morally wrong. Because if you read, you know, take your child outside the camp and stone its death, that it's been, you know, bratty. If you read that in any other context, you're gonna be like, that is no, you know, like that's just wrong. You know, that's deeply more. It's like, why do we feel the need to reconcile it in the Bible when the Bible is completely open and honest about how 
often the people of God do terrible things in the name of the of God. I mean, that's why the prophets exist, you know, because the people had forsaken God. Um, and it's the prophets continually talking about how they're doing all these idolatrous and terrible things, you know, and and false gods and whatnot. Now, this um, kind of this idolatry of the Bible, setting it up as infallible. Um, I mean, it's an it is kind of an older thing to do because you know, Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake in 1600s for saying, you know, that the Earth was not the center of the galaxy. Um, yeah, it was burned at the stake. Uh, the Catholic church didn't forgive, um, Galileo, I think it was until like 1995. <laughs> and they finally said, you know, we were wrong about Galileo, but we had good intentions. Um, so there, yeah, this about the same time the Southern Baptist church admitted they were wrong about slavery, but. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't know that one. No. Um, man, Interesting. it took a long time. I, I, say what? That took a long time. Yeah, it, you know, it's enough to make you think that when they're telling you that the Bible is clear about homosexuality or, or anything else, women in ministry, maybe they're not the folks that are the experts on what the Bible is clear about. But, yeah, like it yeah. takes us forever to admit when we were wrong, but then we... <laughs> even about slavery. Yeah. But like even, even something so scientifically factual as the sun is the center of our solar system... It took the Catholic Church 400 years to forgive Galileo. And yeah. like, that that's just weird to me. It should make us humble, but we don't ever give up the stance that we have of we are infallible beings because we have an infallible Bible. And so therefore, how we're now interpreting it is all correct. And then 100 years from now, we'll be apologizing for more things. You know, you, you're talking, you went into like the fundamentalist takeover in chapters three and four. Uh, and, you know, you talked about their, the fundamentalist response to, to Darwin. Um, and you said the best way to ensure the Bible against another Darwin was to declare that it couldn't possibly be wrong about anything because it was perfect in every way. It wasn't just the story of the people of God. It was the very words of God himself. It was the inerrant, perfect in every way. And anyone who disagreed, anyone who had the gall to question, uh, it's science, it's history, it's anthropology, it's cosmology or ethics was a heretic damned to hell. Like that's powerful statement there. And your, your coverage of the history of fundamentalism was like so spot on and helpful. First, because, um, you know, those of us who grew up thought it was like ordained by God that this is the way. Yeah. And then you learn that, oh, wait, that's only 100 years old. <laughs> you know, right. that, that's a helpful perspective. And second, like you uncovered a motivation of like building personal religious empires, much like, you know, you said King James and his Bible did. Um, and then the fundamentalists took over the SBC and, you know, they took over the Bible study market through all the publishers. Yeah. Uh, and now the Republican Party is taken over by all these fundamentalists. Like, where is the exit ramp? How do we get out of this rampaging machine of fundamentalism, do you think? It's a great question. I mean, it's a question that um, uh, one of the pastors I mentioned, Emerson, um, uh, in the book asked, uh, I'm blanking. Harry Fosdick Emerson um, asked a uh, hundred years ago in a sermon, shall the fundamentalist win? 
Um, you know, and I think the clear answer is they did. Um, you know, and like you just said, I don't think you can really dispute that. Um, they pulled the levers of power uh, everywhere from the pulpit uh, to the presidency, you know, um, or at least, you know, did, you know, until, you know, last election. But, you know, I think, like you said a minute ago, it can't be overstated the importance of the publishing house, you know, and the publishing industry and the influence that, you know, is, uh, uh, it happens there. You know, I mean, you like talked about in the book, you, you have fundamentalist seminary presidents teaching fundamentalist, uh, you know, preachers teaching, you know, fundamentalist congregations, and they're all being undergirded by, you know, fundamentalist publishing houses. I, I'll be honest, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know how you, you break through that um, because, you know, like writing is like a progressive Christian author. There's there's a handful um, of, you know, progressive uh, or publishing houses that are even open, you know, to some of this stuff. You know, and then you've got big publishing houses that are consolidating, you know, that opens some doors. But, you know, Harper One is, is a, you know, large publisher. You know, you've got to have a large following to do that. And so most of the other, you know, publishers um, are great to work with, but are, you know, massively, uh, I don't know what the word is. It, it's hard to break through the the hold of like Thomas Nelson and, and Sondervan. Um, and not everything they're putting out, you know, is bad or anything like that, but they're essentially the gatekeepers. Um, although I think they're now owned by the same company, which is kind of weird. Um, but, you know, when, when the gatekeepers are just that, the gatekeepers... Um, you know, I, you, you try to kick down the gates, you know, as much as possible. I think social media helps because it allows, you know, people to have a voice that otherwise wouldn't. Um, but yeah, I'll be honest. I, I wish I had an answer for that. Um, you know, I, I, I think it, it is the preeminent question of the church um, in light of Trumpism, you know, in, in light of 81% of evangelicals, you know, voting for that. Um, just in light of the state of the church in general, um, you know, is that going to be the final note um, or the final word, you know, on American Christianity? I hope not. Um, I, I think there's still good people doing things, but I think um, I think you're going to need new wineskins, you know, for sure to move forward. And I, and I think you really have to take things down to the foundation. You know, I mean, we're a people that believe in the resurrection and, and resurrection power. So we shouldn't fear the death of things that need to die. Also, like you look at how much power they hold um, and yet you look at, you know, the the rapid decline of fundamentalist institutions like the SBC, they're 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 like you know they lost right. a lot of people last year like more than three denominations combined and do, do you think that like that consolidation of power and then the narrowing down of what is considered biblical and orthodox i do biblical in air quotes by the way for listeners yes. um you know through that fundamentalist takeover has anything to do with the shrinking numbers among young people oh i think absolutely you know, in my own denomination, um, is dealing with its own fundamentalist takeover, you know, and we have pastors and what we call district superintendents and general superintendents or essentially like bishops, you know, convinced that like same sex marriage is the greatest threat facing, you know, the church and mankind. And it's just, and have decided that, 
you know, the path forward is to double down and to swing right into fundamentalism. I can count on one hand how many people I graduated with from a Nazarene school and a Nazarene program designed to raise Nazarene pastors that are actually still in the Nazarene church because they're hell-bent on running off anyone under 40, um, you know, or 50, and plenty of folks above that too who, you know, aren't convinced that Jesus, you know, was a raging bigot who was focused on, you know, same-sex marriage. Um, and now I got on a rant and, and oh. made it personal. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm engaged. Keep ranting. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, there's, there's, there's that, there's the fact that, um, the folks that are looking at coming into the ministry, uh, in our denomination don't want to, because like the, the things they're being asked to sign and to do are becoming more and more inquisitional, you know, more just absurd. Um, more paranoid, um, you know, by the day. And so, you know, who's, who's going to replace them, you know, like, because he, there may be good things going on and good churches going on. Like, I like to say that I go to a church, you know, not a denomination, um, because I love my church and I'm really angry at my denomination at the moment. Um, but the reality is, even if you have a nice church that's healthy in all the ways that churches should be healthy, um, those are the exception to the rule. I mean, yeah. anyone outside the church, um, who has no like prior, you know, connection, they're not hearing any good news. You know, they're not seeing anything that they want to be a part of a, a Bible worth reading or a faith worth following. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, there's this, this fear over this lack of control, you know, this, I mean, that's what the culture wars are about of mm-hmm. trying to re redo, you know, uh, life the way that, you know, a lot of these baby boomers grew up. Um, and you know, you're seeing the last dying grasp of, of that generation. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of them are still in power and pulling the strings of politics and pulpits, you know, and publishing houses. Uh, so the three P's, (laughs) um, so yeah, I just, I mean, I, I tell folks all the time, you know, I grew up convinced beyond a shadow of the doubt that being gay was a sin. Um, and it took me a long time uh, to get to the point where I, it, I could let the spirit open my eyes and let the scales fall. And so there's definitely a lot of people, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful that, um, you know, a lot of folks, even my parents' age, you know, that I see change their minds and even older that are being more open. And that's great because the reality is, you know, that's, Fox News can scream all they want about it, but that issue is over. Um, long-term in historical perspectives in the sense, obviously it's not, there's daily battles, totally different for someone, you know, who's not, but in the sense of the social consciousness, like my kids, um, you know, my, my denomination can fight all they want, but my kids are going to grow up in a world where opposition to same-sex marriage is going to seem as, uh, backwards as opposition to interracial marriage, um, is today. And so, you know, we can fight impossible fights or we can stop and say you know maybe god is moving in ways that are outside of our control and in ways that we never thought possible and maybe the spirit is moving um without us because we refuse to let the spirit move um but again that comes back to giving up control and and being humble um and doing a lot of things that um are not in the church's strong suit uh, yeah yeah very often
I was listening to a podcast um, called Three Black Men, and it's three black men talking about theology, church-related issues, and their experience as black men. And they took on um, the topic of inerrancy from a perspective I had never thought of it this way before, but they said that inerrancy um, ha- is like intertwined with white supremacy because, mm-hmm. you know, being black men, they have a different experience of religious life because yeah. just, you know, being from the South and black, there's a whole history there uh, being persecuted by white Christians. And then this inerrancy is the way that white people were able to hold on to control and power and say, it's okay that you interpret scriptures as long as you, the entryway into my world, you have to come into my world of inerrancy though. Um, and I'm the one who gets to say what is true and what is not, what is right and what is not. And as long as you agree with me, you can come here. And that space is controlled by white men. Yep. And I had never, ever heard it that way before. And as you said, scales fallen from the eyes. And so I started to look into like black liberation theology, uh, reading people like James Cone and Howard Thurman. And it's just like, there is, there is so much richness and diversity, um, in their expression of like faithfulness to a religion that was persecuting them and they're holding on to it in its essence while we've left it behind claiming inerrancy. And I, I, I think that like your, your, your book is really dismantling, not just the control systems of inerrancy, but like even I guess, indirectly taking on the white supremacy of inerrancy in that way. Um, so thank you. Yeah, no, I think you're yeah, absolutely, I think you're, you know, right on. I mean, there's absolutely a, a, a plantation mentality, yeah. uh, you know, in this of like, here's the master and he has to be in absolute total control. And you see that, you know, in broad strokes in, uh, you know, every kind of conservative evangelical church. But and when you get in those really hardcore fundamentalist churches, like an independent fundamentalist Baptist, uh, which is its whole thing. I mean, it's quite literally, you know, the, the, the male is the head of the household and mm-hmm. that means they control exa- everything, you know, down to what their spouses wear. Um, so yeah, I, I was talking to pastor friends the other night and so much of this, um, un- white supremacy undergirds so many of the problems that the church in the United States is struggling with and it's you know when you realize that um it makes more sense to see those that have been particularly complicit or those who just don't want to deal with tension fight back so hard against quote-unquote wokeism and you know all these other you know pejoratives that they they toss around you know when when you see folks that feel like they're on the i mean it, when you feel when you see sorry when you see folks who feel i'll get all my words out um you know like they're being either you know unjustly attacked or exposed they're gonna come out you know with pitchforks screaming and yelling um and and defending themselves and i think that's what you're seeing you know a lot um with the hard right swing of, of the church in the united states yeah i I think so as well. Um, now you talk a little bit about the Bible as myth 
and I was taught that myths were untrue stories proven wrong. You know, like yeah. we know that there's no character named Zeus. Well, actually, we just baptized Zeus and made him God the Father, but that's a different story. <laughs> you know? uh, but you seem to be using that language for the Bible in a totally different way. You know, like the story of Adam and Eve is a myth. It, it, and you're not just saying, well, these are untrue stories, and now we know that evolution is true. Darwin was right. Um, you're using the word myth in a richer way and in a positive way. So can you kind of explain, you know, what what you mean when you say some of these stories are myth? Absolutely. Uh, this is an image or an idea that grew out of uh, Unraptured, you know, and looking at apocalyptic literature and, and trying to understand uh, you know, the story of, of revelation, you know, the visions, you know, because I had grown up as, as well with thinking that myth and truth were polar opposites, that if something was a myth, then it wasn't true because myth was just a synonym for false or for fiction. Right. Um, you know, and so when I was faced with like the book of revelation, not being a literal account of the future, which, you know, when you say it out loud should sound bizarre because it is, you know, a bizarre idea. Um, then you're left often thinking, okay, well, if it's if it's not quote unquote true or if it's not literal, then it's just false. Um, and that's just not the case because the Bible, like a lot of like all ancient um, literature, you know, embraces the power of myth because myth, like historical accounts, are bound by context, by their you know the moment in time, by the people who were involved, by the culture that was uh, involved. But myths, you know, can transcend space and time, you know, transcend cultures, can, can transcend languages. Um, that's why you see the myth of the great flood, you know, in so many different religions, you know, from Mesopotamia or in the Mesopotamia region, uh, it probably was some great flood that, that sparked this uh, story. But the truth was something that was universal, you know, the truth um, that or the truth that was trying to be conveyed, you know, was something that was universal. And that's what's so great. And I think why the, the, the stories of the Bible um, are in the Bible and it's because, you know, long before they were written down, they were just that, I mean, there were stories that people told to each other and around the campfire. And, you know, when the people in exile are telling stories about Exodus, they can't prove that the Exodus happened. You know, archeology span didn't exist. They didn't have, you know, the documents, but they they had experienced that truth, you know, of God's deliverance, of God's grace, of God's faithfulness. They had experienced that in their lives, and so that those stories, whether they're historical facts or myth making on the part of writers, and whether it's in the Hebrew Bible or you know the New Testament, um, the reason those stories are in there is because we have seen their truth in our own lives. We have experienced their truth. And so that's the beauty of myth and why I think the Bible continues to be resident for so many people across so many cultures, you know, thousands of years after it was written is because it's truth goes way beyond, you know, facts and science and history, you know, his truth is something much, much deeper. Mm -hmm. Now, do you, that might scare people to say those words. Um, do you think that there, that there's a way to tell which stories are myth which stories are accounts of something that they were trying to explain actually happened. You know, Noah's Ark, that one's pretty easy, you know, like, um, but what about like Jesus walking on water or the death of Ananias and Sapphira? Like, how do we, how can we tell, or even, is it even important to, 
to understand, to, to say these ones are myths over here, these ones are in the actual happened historical account category. Is that even important when it comes to the role of the Bible? You know, my goal with God Breathe is to make space for people on both ends of that spectrum. Mm. You know, people who answer yes to either one of those, you know, questions. Um, you know, I I believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Um, I also fully recognize that that is a weird thing to believe. Um, and I also recognize that there are people who look at the stories, you know, as as myth, um, but as myth thing, you know, imparts and teaches really important truth. Um, and so I I don't think that it really matters ultimately whether you believe it's a, you know a, a factual um, literal history, whether you believe it's just a you know fabricated myth or something in between. Um, because you know at the end of the day, being a follower of Jesus, you know, isn't about being a historian or you know, a fact checker, you know, being a follower of Jesus is about loving your neighbor. Um, and so what, you know, I try to get the book is however you arrive at that, I don't think it matters. And I don't think it mattered to Jesus. Um, because the one time he talks about judgment day, you know, when he's going to make this ultimate decision of decisions, it's not, did you affirm, you know, the biblical story, you know, do you believe in the virgin birth? Do you think I literally walked on water? It's, I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was thirsty. Did you give me something to drink? And so, um, you know, what I hope comes out of this, you know, is, is more space, you know, in the church. Cause I, I definitely grew up thinking, oh, well, you have to believe Jesus physically rose from the dead. Now, does that put you outside of Christian orthodoxy if you believe that Jesus didn't? Yeah, absolutely. But like, I don't really care as much about those things. Um, <laughs> Not it, it, yeah. Like I, you know, I think orthodoxy is important, you know, in the sense of like, it gives us, you know, a, a place to start. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm convinced that, you know, if Jesus is our starting point and Jesus says that our starting point um, and our finish line has to be love, meaning that we have to understand that God is love, that God has tried to inspire a story of love um, and that that story should lead us to loving others. Um, then I, I don't care really how you get there. And I don't know that God does either. And that opens the door to all sorts of cancer worms that I'm acutely aware of, like universalism and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, but I just think God is bigger than, than any of us can imagine. Yeah. That you said, um, Faith is great, but fundamentalism demands facts. And so belief in facts is baptized and reborn as faith. And I experienced that as a teenager watching Jack Van Impey and watching like documentaries on, we found Noah's Ark, here it is. And here's the spot where they crossed the Red Sea because here's all this yes. Roman things under there. And here's scientific proof that we have lost one day. So the sun standing still moment actually right. happened. And it's like... Um, you, you say God breathes scripture isn't a proof text for perfection, but an acknowledgement that scripture is inherently, inherently imperfect because it's written by God breathed people that inherently imperfect is just a gloriously heretical way to phrase it. I love it. And I use that in a positive <laughs> sense. I think we need more boldness like this to challenge the consolidated authorities. 
of, of the fundamentalists because they are the minority when you look at, uh, even though they're the gatekeepers, they're the minority when you look at just, you know, how culture is shifting. Uh, you would think that like a faith who worships the yeah. incarnation of the divine and human in, in the form of Jesus would be like, okay, with its holy book reflecting that. Why are we not okay with that? Is it just the control thing? Oh yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much to lose from those in power. I mean, from just the very basic, uh, incomes and salaries, um, to prestige and, uh, sense of self-worth and identity. Um, you know, there's, there's so much to be gained and so much to be lost, um, by admitting that the Bible is not perfect because, you know, again, like if, if the Bible is perfect and I play no role in, um, well, I mean, I guess that's the irony of it is if the Bible is perfect and I play no role, then why do we even need the pastors? Mm. Because we can all just, you know, read, read it by ourselves. Um, and that's sort of the idea of the reformation, but the irony of the reformation and their idea of sola scriptura is that everyone's idea of sola scriptura led to an immediate um, splintering into, you know, dozens of different camps, mm -hmm. um, you know, because sola scriptura is nonsense. Um, and it was nonsense from the day Luther regurgitated out of his mouth. I'm not a big Luther fan. Um, <laughs> it, it he say says that. some really hilarious things and you're like, was he drunk when he wrote that? <laughs> I know he was constipated a lot. So <laughs> that, that, that's how I, I try to say, okay, well, this stuff's terrible. It must've been a bad day uh, in that, that department. Yeah. Um, you say in the context of the church, doubt and questions become sin an affront to the clarity of scripture and a threat to the perfectly fortified walls of orthodoxy. Eternity and personal reputations depend on it. And then you go on to say, rather than standing ready with open arms to walk beside our brothers and sisters as they share their doubts and struggles and pain, too many in the church shout them down, kick them out, accuse them of maliciously leading others astray, or dismiss them as never having had faith at all. Now, in my pastoral experience of like 25 years now, and I feel really old saying that, but um, I've noticed that many in the church, like they just pretend that they fit in. They wear their church face when they come in. They put on their church, you know, it's almost like uh, you, they're fighting in the car and then they get to church. It's like everyone smile and pretend everything's okay. You know, it's like that one joke about taking a Baptist golfing with you. He'll drink all your beer, but if you take two Baptist golfing with you, they won't drink any because they don't want to be seen like drinking beer in front of the other one because we value this conformity and uniformity instead of unity and diversity. And I think that that stance has like lost the younger generations. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. You know, we've certainly um, made unity into an idol as well, you know, and made it like to be all and end all to everything. Um, and that's something which, you know, and I know some people roll their eyes when I say this, but again, rooted in uh, white supremacy. I mean, go read Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. You know, people ask yeah. if, if anything could be added to the Bible, I would add that in a heartbeat. I think it's the, out, you know, outside the Bible, but like the most important thing white people in the United States could possibly read. Um, and in it is exactly, you know, what I think is going on with our idol of unity is we're more 
concerned with the absence of tension than the presence of justice. Um, you know, which is why he says that you know he's convinced that the um, the greatest threat to the cause you know of of the black community isn't the KKK or any of those things. It's it's just that it's the moderate white Christian who's more concerned with the absence of tension. And I think you know that's what you see in unity. We don't want to face the difficult questions and conversations because we because the confessing our sin is involved and that's painful and awkward and embarrassing. Um, but that's exactly who we profess to be, you know, and who we're called to be. Um, but, you know, by keeping people silent, you know, you can keep women out of the pulpit and you can maintain Jim Crow and you can uphold slavery and, you you know, going on and on throughout history. Um, that's the problem with, with turning unity into an idol. And it's also not super biblical. I mean, sure, you've got Paul calling the early church to do that because you've got Christianity going off and. 30 different directions from the the word go um, when Jesus walks out of the tomb. Jesus also talks about, you know, I didn't come here to to unite, but to divide. You know, I came with a sword to separate, you know, mother and father and blah, blah, blah. Um, so you have to be very careful about that. I mean, there's absolutely something admirable about coming together and working together and, and that. But when we make unity an end of itself, then we have, you know, a huge problem. And right along with that, um, you know, it's this obsession that we have with like branding. And I think this comes from like the seeker sensitive, seeker sensitive movement um, in recent years. But, you know, it, it, branding is something as old as time, even if, you know, it's just a modern obsession now. But, you know, the medieval Catholic church was, you know, concerned with branding itself, you know, leaders. Um, but, you know, we, we get so worried about people seeing our dirty laundry, you know, that we're terrified that it will get turned into a, you know, Hulu documentary or, or whatever. Um, but like the Bible is, if nothing else, an account of the dirty laundry of the people of God. You know, it's the story of murderers and rapists and adulterers and thieves and criminals and terrorists, and, you know, and oppressors. And it's the story of God meeting all of those sorts of people right where they are. And, you know, we, we are people who, if we're going to be calling ourselves biblical or scriptural, or if those words are going to have any meaning then we're people whose story demands transparency, you know, and accountability, um, not branding. And so, I, you know, I think as it, Christians, if we want to be, you know, faithful to our calling and to ourselves and to our community, I mean, we have to do a much better job with transparency and being honest about when we screw up. Because, you know, especially in the social media age, you can't hide any of this stuff anymore. And, you know, young folks... Gosh, that's most weird to say. You know, younger people, um, you know, see through the BS. You know, they they see the 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 hypocrisy, and and they want nothing to do with it. You know. Mm-hmm. Like I I do a lot of like work with other pastors. You know, where I spiritual direction and coaching and things like that through restoration. You know, if they're burned out, and I'm noticing like talking. I know more ex-pastors that I knew pastors now, which is interesting in itself. But what I'm noticing is that there is an exhaustion in pastors because um, they're, they're not feeling comfortable with where this thing is going. But they're also feeling fear of job security about saying something. And so we have like this, like this imbalance where the pastors are supposed to be the ones discipling and shaping a congregation, but now instead we have uh, the Republican Party and fundamentalists and 
um, you know, the whole Trumpism thing is crazy. And so many of the pastors that I personally have interacted with, I haven't taken a poll or anything, are so uncomfortable with it. And I have heard the phrase, but I can't say anything to my congregation or I'll lose my job so often. Like, how do we balance that tension, do you think? Like, what... Ooh, I mean, you're talking about institutional change because, yeah. you know, the reality is as long as a pastor is um, bound to the whims of a local church board, it's impossible to be prophetic, you know, because you know, it's it's easy to stand from the sidelines and say, well, you should stand up for your principles, you know, and you should stand up and speak. And in some sense, pastors absolutely should, you know, if you're remaining silent during huge social upheaval moments like the Black Lives Matter, if you are just turning a blind eye to rabid, you know, right-wing uh, extremism, you know, in church, like you, you, there is a point where you need to, you know, or, you know, rabid homophobia, Islam, whatever, um, you know, there is a point where you need to make some decisions. But, to, you know, to expect every pastor to be able to be in a position to just do that, you know, the next news cycle um, is not fair, not just to them, but to like, their kids and their spouses who aren't pastors, you know? And so it's, it's, it's difficult because it's such a two edged sword because on one hand um, you want pastors to, I mean, we, we think we hire pastors, you know, to be prophetic, you know, to speak for God or in some sense, you know, not directly, but however pastors, you know, are supposed to communicate um, the good news to us. But then we completely negate their ability to do that by controlling the purse strings, you know, and dangling, uh, you know, Damocles sword over their heads, mm -hmm. because if they disagree with the the wrong people, those people will, you know, get together and vote them out. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's there's institutional changes like an appointment system that that can be helpful, but people go and complain to bishops, you know, or mm -hmm. bishops don't agree, and so they silence them. So. You know, that's another one where I'll be honest, I don't know, but it, it is it is a serious problem um, that needs to be reckoned with. But I don't know that we have the courage to reckon with it or honestly the desire to reckon with it because, you know, most of your churches that become huge become huge because they're comfortable and make people happy yeah. and make people comfortable happy is, is not prophetic. Yeah. And, you know, I can grow a church easily by offering amenities. You know, and I've even, I've heard young people say, well, I don't agree with this church, but they have a good kids program, you know? <laughs> and it's like, okay, but you're like perpetuating the system that's abusing you. Exactly. But it has the amenities, so. Okay, you, you said in like the final chapter, uh, American Christianity in particular isn't just dying, it's already dead. The church at least the church in the United States is in desperate need of resurrection. And I think like not just American Christianity, but I think like Western colonial forms of Christianity are dying yeah. off or dead already. If you look at Europe, what does resurrection look like? What do you hope to see? Like if you could just wave a magic wand and everything's better again, like what would you hope to see? Mm. Um, radical inclusivity, mm -hmm. radical humility, um, and radical compassion for neighbor. I, 
I center my theology on a person of Jesus. That's why I, I hung around Christianity. It's because I, I find Jesus of Nazareth a compelling figure, um, someone worth following, you know, as we said, you know, at the beginning. And Jesus tells me to love my neighbor. Jesus loves his neighbor and says, go and do likewise. And Jesus says, you know, at the end of all things, it comes down to how we loved our neighbor. And I think it's easy to get to talk about getting back to like a radical simplicity of that. Um, but it's harder because that sort of simplicity is, it's impossible to control. Mm-hmm. And we want to be able to control who people love and who they associate with and who's inside and who's outside. And it also will require a lot of uh, confession and repentance for wasteful spending. I mean, think about how much money we we pour into programming at churches. And like, if COVID told, taught us anything, it's that that programming is irrelevant. I mean, you know what I mean? Like how many churches, I mean, are there churches that died because COVID like, you know, metaphorically, I had to close their doors? You know, sure. But every single church that opened their doors after COVID is testimony that all that extra programming that we pour tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars into every year, that doesn't keep the church alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think if I could maybe if I could wave a magic wand, it would be getting back to not getting back because I hate the idea mm-hmm. there was because there was never some mystical moment in the history of the church from the even at the very beginning where everybody kind of lolly and was was wonderful and happy. But if we could make if we could take Jesus seriously about loving God and loving neighbor being the beginning and end of the law and the prophets and deal with the consequences in honest ways, I think that could be a radical transformation or at least a step towards yeah. the sort of radical resurrection that I think the church needs. Yeah. I think my favorite, I have to say my favorite quote that you put in the book, I don't have a question around it, but I just need to say it and thank you for using it. But you said, when we transform the Bible, into a weapon of war against our enemies in the end, they're not only the ones to suffer our wrath, we die too as we're consumed by our sanctified hate and fear of the other. And that that phrase, sanctified hate, is such a powerful and appropriate term. I just had to say that, get it on, on record here and say thank you, thank you for saying it that way. It's true. Do you have it? You want to? You have any thoughts that go with that? I mean, that's just so powerful. I hate that I see it so much every day, and I hate how welcome it has become in the church, and how afraid we are as a people collectively that we we hate in the name of Jesus, and and don't stop to think about the incongruity of that because it's too painful and and that that is that's very scary yeah yeah so my final my final uh quote here that you kind of close things out to be god breathes is to tell a good story and a true story so let us tell a good and true story and let us tell it honestly, never being afraid to admit our failings, our doubts, our frustrations, our pain, our anger, our hope, and yes, even our ignorance. 
we were created to be free, free to be curious, free to doubt, free to ask questions, free to hope, free to love, free to disagree, free to deconstruct, and free to dismantle systems of injustice and oppression wherever they may be, including and especially inside the church. And I, I think that we all want this freedom. And, you know, when people get honest in church, and I try to make the safest space possible for people to be honest, people just like exhale, you know, like, oh, I can be me here. You know, and it, they want that freedom, but it's also scary because it is giving up the control. Um, but there are people living in that liminal space of I've stepped into that freedom and it means that I had to step away from church because I can't find a place to exercise that freedom and be a part of a church. Do you, that's a liminal space in between of deconstruction and reconstruction and all that kind of stuff. What are some helpful like liminal living tips you have for those who have left the church because they couldn't find it there, but still wish to have some form of faith? I think the most important thing would be to find community because I mean, ultimately that's what the church is about because that's what God is about. You know, when we profess that God is triune, you know, that's not just some abstract theological, you know, uh, puzzle that is just fun to think about. You know, it's, it's a, it's a statement about who God is. We're saying that who God is fundamentally is this being in communion, this communion of love, and that that there's there's not something behind that. There's that's not a description, you know, God like that's just who God is, and and in saying that, we're saying that we that 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 image of of a community of love informs everything, and if we're going to say that we are made in the image of God, then we are called to be creatures in communion with one another, and so you know, I think that neither height nor depth nor, you know, principalities or powers or leaving the church can separate us from the love of God. And so I don't think we have anything to fear about leaving, you know, places that have been hurtful or painful or traumatic or, or whatever, because I don't think God's going to leave us. But I think at the same time, we need to remember that, you know, no man is an island and that, that you can't just love it by yourself. You know, love is something that pours out, you know, some, something that's in relationship. And so I think, you know, when we step out of our tradition, you know, that grew up, that we grew up in into something healthier, that we always still do that in the sense of community, even just not for, you know, some secret religious reason, but just for our own mental health, you know, for our own happiness, you know, for our own fulfillment, you know, life, life is, life is better shared at a table with other people, you know, than it is sitting alone. I know when I talk with people who have deconstructed, that is the thing that they miss the most, is they miss the people of the church and the sense of belonging and community and, and everything. Zach, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for your passion for the Bible. Uh, that is so radical. And thank you for being on the podcast today. It's just been such a good time talking with you. Where, if people want to buy the book, um, where do you, where would you prefer them buy it? That's a great question. Um, wherever is easiest for them. <laughs> um, it's such a loaded question. You know, I, I would be lying if I said I didn't get a bunch of books off of Amazon, but I love local bookstores and I love my publisher and every once in a while they have a deal. 
if you can check them out as well, that's Herald Press. Um, but you know, whatever's easiest for people. All right. You, you can book just about anywhere online, except Lifeway. They won't sell it. I wonder why. I don't know. Weird. <laughs> weird, weird. And where can people, if they want to follow you and just kind of what you're saying in the public spheres, where's the best place to follow you? Absolutely. Um, you know, I've got my most basic contact point is zachhunt.net. Uh, it's got most of my show, socials there. I've got a Substack, which is um, zachhunt.substack. Um, and then my social handle is just a little bit different. There's an extra A because somebody somebody stole my name a long time ago. But at hey, sure. um, Hunt uh, with two A's and Zach is on uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter. Um, find me all those places. Um, I've got some cool stuff going on at the website. You can find on Substack. You can find it. Um, we're giving away a kitsuki bowl, um, which is, uh, if you're familiar with that, it's a Japanese tradition of repairing broken pottery, in particular with with gold. There's a whole story behind that. Mm-hmm. And if you're interested in having me come speak, um, I'm waiving speaking fees uh, as I put a get put together booking, putting together a book tour for speaking. I promise I can speak good words. Um, but there's stuff on my website there. Um, you get me there and, and, and I'll, I'll speak for free. So lots of stuff. The book's been great. I appreciate you having me on. The response has been overwhelming and, and wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I, uh, I can't wait to publish this one. I'm excited to dive in. Well, yes. Uh, well, I still, I don't know how to like officially end one. So I think I'll just hit stop. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on the Liminal Living podcast today. Um, If you are in a dark night or deconstruction and you need some help, uh, some guidance, definitely check out Zach's book. Uh, It's going to, I think it's a good way to see the Bible in a different light that's not so harmful to the soul. Um, And I think it's the way to move forward. Uh, One of the pieces of how we move forward and rebuild this thing uh, called the faith in a different world that is it's it's all brand new uh, so if you're in the midst of a dark night in deconstruction you'd like spiritual direction just reach out to me uh, through my facebook page or on the website is on the way still building it website's on the way uh, and we'd love to have you check those out and i'd love to walk with you through those if need be uh, so peace out we'll see you next week uh, we talk with author jackie turner Uh, And she is uh, the author of a book called Tumbled People, Deconstructing and Reconstructing Your Faith. So that's going to be a good one. Be on the lookout for that one. And we'll talk at you later. Peace out.